This semester, our focus is seeing pictures of Jesus in the Old Testament, okay? And last week, I talked from the passage in Luke 24, the story of the two disciples walking down the road to Emmaus and how Jesus appears and shows them how all of the scriptures are talking about him. <laughs> she didn't hear, yeah. Um, all the scriptures were talking about him, Jesus said. What Jesus says is, if you don't understand the Old Testament as being about him, you actually don't understand it. And, you know, you could talk about, well, is that really a historical perspective? Well, Jesus is a historical person, and he said, this is how Christians should understand the Old Testament. He argued with the Pharisees about it, told them they were wrong, because when they read the law of Moses, they didn't see it as pointing to him, so they don't understand Moses, they don't believe Moses, and he told the disciples on the road to Emmaus basically the same thing. So that's our starting point. I think it's um, defensible, even as a scholarly approach. Um, well, we can talk about that over coffee if you want sometime. Tonight, we're going to look at the account of Noah and the flood. And of course, there's so many things that we could talk about. And the, one of the challenges of dealing with Old Testament passages is sometimes to get the whole story, you got to read a lot and take up a lot of time doing that. So I've tried to edit down the passage so that we can just hit the high points. Uh, but I'm not going to delve into all of the scientific kind of stuff. I'm happy to talk about that. I think that you can be a faithful interpreter of Scripture and think that it was a regional flood or a worldwide flood. I do. And if you want to talk about that afterwards, you, we can talk about that. I don't want to get into that too much. I want to actually follow the narrative structure of the passage because my belief, and this is not just my belief, this is the traditional belief of the church, is that the five books of Moses were written by Moses while they were wandering, Israel was wandering in the desert. And I think there's lots of good reasons for believing that, and I think it's always worth then reflecting on why was this passage written then, and what did it mean to those people, what did it mean to people in the exile, what did it mean to the people in the days of Hosea, what did it mean to the disciples, what does it mean to us today, all right? So let's start out by reading um, some of this story. I, I don't want to assume that you guys know all of the details of the story, but I'm going to assume that you know part of it, at least for this story. I think that's a pretty, pretty good assumption. So chapter 6 of Genesis, I'm reading from the ESV, and we're going to start at verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of mankind was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him in his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out mankind whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Down at verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch 
And then there's a lot more detail about exactly how to make the ark. But skip down to verse 17. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you, and of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Now jump down to chapter 7. I'm going to pick up at verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. And you know the rest of that story, right? And they get in the ark, and God seals them up in the ark, and it keeps raining and raining and raining. Down to chapter 8. Pick up at chapter 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. Down to verse 13. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. Verse 15. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you, bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. In verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Jump down to chapter 9. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you, and as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud 
And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. I know that was a long passage, but you're going to see why all of that's important as we kind of go through the narrative structure of this story. But first, let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you for your holy, inerrant word, and we pray that even now you could open our eyes that we may, uh, we may see beautiful, wonderful things in your word, even see this beautiful picture of Jesus. We ask you to help us. Send your spirit, we pray. Amen. So I wonder, have you ever wanted to just wipe out something and start over again? Maybe um, you started like I've been wanting to do. You start working on some project without really reading the directions and you get into it and you're like, it's just such a hopeless mess that you just want to scrap the whole thing. Maybe you're writing a paper and you're trying to figure out how to structure what part needs to come. And it's just, you're just like, I just need to erase the whole thing and start over again. That's kind of what this story is about, actually. But, but unfortunately, what you're going to find in this story is even wiping out everything sometimes doesn't actually fix the problem. I mean, uh, you can hit delete and try to write that paper over again, but if you still are confused about your topic, it's not going to be much better. And that's what this story is about. It's about wiping out everything, a fresh start, if you will, a do-over, if you will, but it still doesn't fix the problem. Now, I have to say, it's a little weird this week to be talking about the flood. I'd already mentioned last week I was going to talk about this, so here I am, and then now, you know, probably some of you guys have watched the news, you've seen uh, the stories of the Bahamas, and it's just, it's just incredible. I, I actually, it, for me, it brings back even when Katrina hit, and I know that there's probably people that were affected by that. Um, I've talked to some uh, freshman students even that were displaced by that um, back in the day. I remember I was preaching on Jeremiah that fall, and got to a passage that very week that was about God destroying the world through a flood, and it was kind of like, whoa, this is like the wrong passage at the wrong time. Uh, but I do think that actually when you look at this story, um, I don't know, sometimes I read it and I think more, I, I just don't really think about the reality of a flood when I read it sometimes. I, I think even reading it and working on it today, it's a little more, like a flood is a horrible thing. It's a, it's a horrible thing, and maybe some of you have lived through that. I, I was thinking, you know, we had the floods in Nashville in 2010. I know some of you guys are from here, maybe you remember that. I remember literally, like, turning on the news and watching down I-24, like a school building floating down the interstate. The interstate. About, you know, half a mile from my house. Nolensville Road was a river. As a matter of fact, there's a YouTube video, uh, some guys caught this carp that was like this big on the road, right? So floods can be really incredible things. As we look at this story tonight, I, I, don't, I don't want us to miss that. The destruction is real and it's serious. 
But as we look at this, I want us to consider why that happened. What is the context? Particularly the, the, this idea that the good news comes in the context of bad news. So we're going to consider the context of this story, and then we're going to look at the big picture. Like, how does this story, like, zoom out and just see the narrative arc of the story? And then we're going to look in particular at this promise of the bow and what that means. Okay? So let's see if we can pull through this. Um, the first is the context. This is a little, a little dismal, isn't it? Verse 5, uh, chapter 6. If you're one of those people that believes that mankind is, is really great, you know, they just need a little direction, a little more information, and everything will be better, um, Genesis 6, 5 is uh, just kind of like, whoa, you run right into a brick wall. This is pretty, this is pretty all-encompassing, this statement. The Lord saw that the wickedness of mankind was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. That's the way the NIV translation says it. All the intentions of the heart, so it's not just superficial, it's at the heart level, only evil all the time. That's strong. But it's also the context. If you remember Genesis chapter 3, sin comes into the world. In Genesis chapter 4, you have Cain and Abel. The first murder comes into the world, right? And then you have chapter 5. Do you know what chapter 5 is? We call chapter 5 the death chapter. Because chapter 5 is like a little genealogy. It says, so-and-so lived so many years, and then he died. So-and-so lived so many years, and then he died. And then he died, and then he died, and then he died. Except for Enoch, who walked with God and was no more. There's like one little glimmering hint that maybe death isn't the only possibility. But for the most part, sin has now begun to spread its influence. And we get to Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Evil has spread and made a mess of everything, and it didn't take very long. And God is grieved. And you may look at this and be like, whoa, I thought, like, how can God be sorry or God can be grieved? Let me tell you, God reveals himself this way sometimes. And it's not that he's like, oh, I didn't see that coming. It's not that at all. As a matter of fact, part of the, the glory of the gospel is that God did see it coming, knew that it would require him sending his only beloved son, and he created anyway. He was never surprised. He's never surprised. And that's what's so amazing about this passage. God is grieved. In other words, he's basically reflecting to us how we should feel. And if you, if you struggle with the brokenness of this world, and I hope you do, I want you to understand that God is more grieved over the brokenness that sin has brought to his world than you and I. Because you and I only have a sense that we were made for something more beautiful, something more right. But God knows what this creation was made for. And God is actually committed to bringing it about, as we're going to see as this story unfolds. But God is grieved. Don't make light of that. God is passionately involved with what happens to the world he made. But the Bible says that Noah found favor with God and that he was blameless. And so you're like, oh, okay. 
Here's the question that you need to ask, though. Which is the cause and which is the effect? In other words, does he find favor with God because he's blameless? Or is he an upright man because he's been blessed by God? And you might wonder, well, how, do you gonna, how are you going to find an answer to that? Well, there's actually a clue in the text that I think helps us know which way we're supposed to read this. And it's there at the beginning of verse 9 in chapter 6. It says this, these are the generations of Noah. You see that phrase at the beginning of verse 9 in chapter 6? So that is a way of translating a Hebrew word that is the word toledoth. Toledoth, and it means these are the generations of, or this is the account of the generations of. It actually is a word that refers probably to a written account. It actually is, is probably true that Moses had a written account he was working from. That word appears 10 times in Genesis. It's the way the book is structured. And what that means is verse 9 starts a new section. The reason that's important is that verse 8 goes with the verses that came before, but verse 9 starts a new section. What that means is you see a deliberate contrast that God is making with verses 5, 6, 7, and then Noah in verse 8. And so we're to read it this way. Man is only evil all the time, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Then verse 9 starts a new section. It goes kind of back over this same area. So it's not saying that he found favor because he was blameless and righteous. It's also important to understand that that word blameless and upright does not mean perfect. It doesn't mean perfect. And Noah, you know, you can tell from the story that he knows he's not perfect. He didn't deserve to be saved by the ark because what's the first thing he does when he gets out of the ark? He, he, he makes a, a sacrifice, a thanksgiving offering to God. He knew that it was grace that kept him safe in the ark. And as the story goes on, beyond what I read later in chapter 9, do you remember what happens? Noah gets drunk. He exposes his nakedness. Theologians debate what does that mean? Does that mean that he just exposed himself and was shameful? Or is there an implication of incest? It's hard to know, but it was bad. And what you get is Noah is not the hero of this story. As a matter of fact, he's pretty passive in this story. Most of the action is God in this story, as it is in most of these types of stories. So Genesis 6-9 is giving a, a summary of Noah's life, not the reason why he found favor in God's eyes, okay? What else do we see when we consider the context, the good, the good news coming out of the bad news? We see this, that God is being gracious even in giving us the bad news. And, and, and you, you really need to see this if you're going to understand the Old Testament. When God warns people, when God declares what's wrong, that's actually part of his gracious reaching out to mankind. Without that, people are groping around in the dark wondering what we need to do for the gods to be pleased with us. And as a matter of fact, of all the ancient texts that we have, the number one topic in all the ancient texts of all the different regions, of all the different religions, is this. What is the will of the gods? It was the obsession of ancient people. 
And the, the Bible is an incredible contrast to all of that because God says, this is what I made you for. This is how you are to live. Rather than leave us wondering, it's actually very gracious of God. And God gives the bad news here when he tells us that sin is a heart issue. It's not just about doing bad things. It's a heart issue, and it's entrenched. There's a theologian, a guy named Richard Lovelace. He's passed away now, but he was um, a professor of a guy named Tim Keller. I think I quoted Tim Keller uh, last week. So Richard Lovelace has this classic um, definition of sin that I want to read for you. I think it's helpful. I put it on the outline for you. He says, the structure of sin in the human personality is something far more complicated than the isolated acts and thoughts of deliberate disobedience commonly designated by the word. So he's trying to say the word sin, generally we think of individual actions as sins. But he says in the biblical definition, sin cannot be limited to isolated instances or patterns of wrongdoing. It is something much more akin to the psychological term complex. It's an organic network of compulsive attitudes, beliefs, and behavior deeply rooted in our alienation from God. Sinful thoughts, words, and deeds flow forth from the darkened heart automatically and compulsively as water from a polluted fountain. And it's good for you to know that because you know what? When you actually have a proper diagnosis, you'll never settle for a superficial cure again. If you think that all that's wrong with you is you haven't tried hard enough, you will be in slavery for the rest of your life. If you think that all that's wrong with you is that you just didn't please enough people or get high enough grades, and you think that if you could just fix that, everything would be better, you will be in slavery. God is gracious to tell us, oh, it's much worse than that. It's much worse than that. But cheer up. Cheer up when you realize that it's so bad that all you can do is throw yourself upon grace, that's the beginning of real freedom. We also see God's patience. Now this is like a, a, a thing that's a little confusing. I didn't actually read this, but maybe some of you uh, have, have read this before where it says that God says, I won't contend with man forever, that 120 years will be, and, and most people think that that's a reference to the lifespan the human beings can't live beyond 120 years. And they're like, well, I, this guy lived to 135, so the Bible's wrong. That's not actually what the Bible is saying. What God is saying is, I'm going to give them, even though they're only evil all the time, I'm going to give them 120 more years. I'm not going to contend with them forever, but I'm going to give them 120 more years. Even though he's grieved, that is the patience of God. And you might wonder, what was going on in those 120 years? Well, uh, the Apostle Peter actually writes about this in his letters. In 1 Peter chapter 3, he says, and this is one of those passages that always perplexes people, where it talks about Christ after he was crucified. It says that he preached to the spirits who were disobedient, who are now in prison. And people are like, oh, like did he go to hell and proclaim the gospel to the people that were in hell? No, because if you read on, it says he did this in the days of Noah. In other words, Christ preached through Noah to these people who for 120 years God pled with them to turn and repent, and still they wouldn't. 
And Peter brings it up again in 2 Peter, where he calls Noah a preacher of righteousness. So if all you think about when you think of Noah is a guy that built an ark and grumbled about it, but eventually he gets saved anyway, that's not actually the full biblical understanding. Noah was a preacher of righteousness while God for 120 years was being patient, even though he was grieved at all the wickedness. Well, that's the context, the bad news. But now let's consider the big picture. We zoomed in, let's zoom out. You know what's interesting? There are so many parallels between this story and the creation story. Both of them regard the deep and the chaos and then the dry land coming forth as God sends his spirit. The word wind is the same word for spirit in Hebrew and in Greek, ruach. God sends his spirit to drive the chaos back, to drive the water away so that dry land can come again. In other words, what you see is this is a second creation account in a sense. It is to be seen as a do-over. But the do-over is not enough because the sin problem that's made a mess of things can't be healed by God's judgment. Even by this severe judgment of destroying the world. And you see a confirmation of this new creation theme when you look at Genesis 8, verse 13. Look, it says it was on the 601st year, notice, in the first month, on the first day that the waters were dried. You see? It's starting over. The calendar starts over. But it's still not enough. It's like, anybody ever uh, had a compost pile? You know what a compost pile is? Yeah. It's like you, you take all your, like, leaves and you put them in a pile and they get rotten, right? And then you, yeah, more leaves, all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Well, we'll just stick to leaves because um, sometimes you talk to people and, and they think you, you talk to them and yeah, it, it can be really rich, right? Yeah. So sometimes people seem to think that Christianity is about turning over a new leaf. And, and I, I might say, well, yes, I guess it's like turning over a new leaf as long as the image in your mind of turning over a new leaf is a compost pile. And you stick that pitchfork in there and you can turn over a new leaf, but all you have are rotten leaves. To turn over a new leaf, but it's only rotten leaves. That's the picture. It's a do-over, but it didn't really fix the problem. Uh, I love this story about St. Jerome. Jerome is the guy who translated the Bible from Greek and Hebrew into Latin. And he's one of the you know, major figures of church history. Well, at one point he decided that he needed to escape the lust of the flesh. And so you know what he did? He decided to go out into the desert. But you know what he said? I went out in the desert to escape the lust of the flesh and I found myself surrounded by visions of naked dancing women. <laughs> like, you, there's nowhere you can go that you, don't, that, you, that you can get away, right? If the issue, the sin issue, is not external, and you gotta think, like Noah for 120 years, he's building the ark, and he's preaching, and the people aren't listening, and they aren't responding. And you've got to think at some point, he's like, God, why don't you just bring the flood already? Like, these people are never going to repent. I don't know what you're waiting for. Let's just cleanse this place of everything. Let's just get rid of all of this evil, all this wickedness, all of this brokenness. Have you ever longed for that? Haven't you ever longed for that? But God says, No. That's not going to fix the problem. Because you're still going to be here, Noah. <laughs> and so the problem is still here. So it's a do-over, but it doesn't fix the problem, right? 
And, and you see that. Look at this. Interesting. In Genesis 6-5, it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention and thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So what does he do? He brings a flood. But then look down in chapter 8, verse 21. And it says, And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. You're like, what? Like, here's the point. God knew, God knew that the flood would not solve the sin problem. But did man know it? Did man know it? After the flood, God reiterates, the sin problem is still here, but I'm not going to send a flood again. I'm not going to send a flood again because it didn't help. It didn't fix the problem. Man might have thought, man, that, you, took, you took really serious. Way to go, God. You took evil seriously and you dealt with it. Awesome. You go. But he's like, yeah, I did it, but it didn't really help. Now do you realize how serious the problem is? It's so much worse than you thought. We also learn, of course, from this that Noah is not the Savior. There has to be another solution. And you know, it's interesting. Romans chapter 2, verse 4, the Apostle Paul says this, that the kindness and mercy of God is designed to lead to repentance. Boy, I wish more churches understood that. Because a lot of people think, if only God would like bring the kind of judgment like he brought in the days of Noah, everybody would turn and repent. No, they wouldn't. It's the kindness and mercy of God that leads to repentance. The judgment of God by itself just makes people hide in a new way. It doesn't change the heart. And you see that in the story. This is a story of judgment, but the focus of the story is actually chapter 8, verse 1. And as a matter of fact, if we had time, I'd show you what's called a chiastic structure. Chiasm is like the Greek word chi, it means that you've got like this statement that matches this statement at the end, and then as you go in, eventually it centers on one central um, verse that's highlighted. And you know which one it is? It's chapter 8, verse 1. And what does it say? But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. What did God remember? Well, he remembered the covenant he established back in chapter 6, verse 18. Now, what is a covenant? It's hard to understand much of the Old Testament without understanding the word covenant. Covenant. This is actually the first time in chapter 6 that the word covenant is used in the Bible. And here's the key thing you need to understand. When it's used here in chapter 6, it's used in a Hebrew form. Hebrew verbs have different forms, not just tenses. And the form is a form that says that it was reestablished. And so then you're like, oh, so this is the first time the word is used, but it's used here like it's being reestablished. Well, when was it established? And then you see some clues, like he's repeating some of the things that he said to Adam and Eve, like be fruitful and multiply, take dominion over the creation, all these sorts of things. And you realize God created Adam and Eve in a relationship with him that is described best by this word covenant. Now, a covenant is not a contract. In a contract, both parties negotiate, give and take, and they finally get to a point where they both, you know, have got enough of what they want and not enough of what they don't want, and they sign the contract. Covenants aren't like that at all. Covenants are sovereignly uh, administered. 
The one who has all the power sets the terms. You don't get to negotiate in a covenant. The heart of the Bible's covenant that God makes with his people is this. I will be your God. You will be my people. Or you could think of it this way. I will betroth myself to you. Isn't that what we read in the call to worship? Right? God says this over and over and over again. And that's what you have here. So God marries himself to Adam and Eve. They spurn his love and run after another union with the serpent and those that are opposed to God and his ways. And God comes after them again and says to Noah, I'll marry myself to you and to those who come after you. And they're in the ark, and God says, I remember Noah. I remember Noah. Now, there's no salvation outside of the ark, right? The only people that live are those that are in the ark. But you know what? The ark is an image of salvation through death. Do you know that? You know, there's actually three arks in the Bible. Most people know a two of them, right? The Noah's ark. And then what's the second one that you know of? The ark of the covenant. But what's the third ark? Anybody know? It's the basket that Moses has put in. It's called an ark. And what's true about the basket and the ark that Noah builds? There's no rudder. When you get put in the ark, you're as good as dead. Unless there's a miraculous intervention. And this is the way, actually, the Apostle Peter understands the ark. In chapter 3 of 1 Peter, he says that baptism is like death. And life comes through this death. And that's what it was to be in the ark. When God seals them up in the ark, they're as good as dead. But, the gospel is always the great but. But, God remembered Noah. No, it's true. You know, there's all kinds of great buts in the Bible. <laughs> there's a guy named uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great Welsh preacher who's with the Lord now. He preached an entire sermon on but God from Ephesians chapter 2. Right? That we're dead in our sins and trespasses, but God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. It's by grace you're saved. Yeah. I like that line. Well, that could be an RUF t-shirt. Mary, you could work on that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So that's the, way, that's the way to understand. The ark means salvation is completely God's work because you can't steer the ark. You can't make the waters recede. There's nothing you can do except be saved through the ark. Just like there was nothing Moses could do except float down the river whichever way God chose to direct it. And in Moses' case, the Nile River was a god in Egypt. And it's God saying, I am powerful enough. You can put Moses in the belly of the God and I will still save him through an ark. Charles Spurgeon said this so well. He said, faith is not a plant native to the soil of the human heart. And if you find it growing in your heart, someone must have planted it. And that's one of the main points of this story. And then there's this. God provides for the preservation, sorry, preservation of the seed line of the coming Messiah by decreeing that all manslayers, whether they be man or animal, are to be punished. And you might have think, like, that's kind of weird. Here's, here's what's so amazing. Even after sin has come into the world, 
Even after God says all the inclinations of man's heart is only evil all the time, even after the flood, he reiterates that man is evil from his youth, yet still the image of God is in mankind, such that to destroy the image of God in man needs to be dealt with. Where do you get the idea that all people are valuable and worthy of dignity? You don't get it from paganism. It's a gift that came into the world through Christianity, and that's a matter of historical fact. And there's a lot of people that deny Christianity and think that that's just common sense, but they've got no basis for it. It came into the world because of Christianity, and it's still one of the greatest gifts that Christianity has given the world. That doesn't mean Christians always live up to it, unfortunately, but that's where it comes from. Even after the fall, Francis Schaeffer put it this way, man is a glorious ruin. That's the paradox here, a glorious ruin that God still cares about. All right, well, let's look at the bow. We'll close with the bow. This is my favorite part of the story. So the bow here, you might think of the rainbow, right? And you might think of like a bow in your hair that some of the ladies might have. But the word in the Hebrew here for bow is the word for a battle bow. And the Hebrew battle bow is a serious weapon. It stands about six feet tall. And the sign that God gives that he's not going to destroy the earth by flood again is what? It's the bow cocked, bent, and aimed at God himself. Isn't that remarkable? God says, you deserve judgment. I'm going to wipe out the whole of mankind because they're only evil all the time. And then here's what I'm going to say to you by this sign after I show you that that's not going to work. What's the sign I give to show you that I'm never going to do that again? I'm going to aim the bow at myself. I'm going to aim the bow at myself. That's amazing. In uh, Isaiah 54, verses 9 and 10, as God's people are sent off into exile, again, another death, another time when God's people wonder, can there be life that will come through this death of exile? And Isaiah says this to the exiles, this is like the days of Noah to me, God says. I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. And then check out that verse we read as the call to worship, Hosea chapter 2, verse 18. I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. He's talking about the Noah covenant, but he's talking about it in the future because the Noah covenant is just speaking of a bigger and better promise and a better fulfillment that's coming. He says, I will abolish the bow the sword and the war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. It's beautiful. That's the gospel picture. I will put down the battle bow and marry myself to my people. But how is that going to come? Because the battle bow will be loosed on Christ himself. The battle bow will be loosed on Christ himself. It's just like with Abraham. When he thinks he's going to make a covenant with God, 
and he's ready. They cut the animals apart, and they're going to walk through the, the pieces hand in hand. That's what people would do when they would cut a covenant. And it's a way of saying, it's kind of like a super intense version of, you know, cross my heart and hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. It's basically a way of saying, if either of us breaks our part of the covenant, may we be torn apart as these animals have been torn apart. And yet, what does God do? He puts Abraham into a deep sleep, and he walks through the pieces by himself. And that smoking fire pot that walks through the pieces is the same smoking pillar of fire that guides God's people through the wilderness. The pillar of fire, it's the same Hebrew word. And he says it the same same basic idea here. You think you're going to make a covenant, a contract with me? You're going to keep your end of the bargain and you're going to get to the new heavens and the new earth? No, the only way that happens is if I take the punishment for your covenant breaking. And that's what I'm promising to do. I'm not going to destroy the earth by flood again because the battle bow is going to be loosed on my son in your place. That's the point of this uh, verse that we sang in O Love That Will Not Let Me Go. I love love to tell that story, especially when it comes to um, when I do weddings because people often like to sing that song for that wedding. And you notice that verse? It's on your little song sheet if you want to look at it again. It says this, O joy that seekest me through pain. You know, one of the reasons we sing some of these weird old hymns is because they have a lot of wisdom and a lot of wisdom that kind of modern people tend to miss. We tend to think that joy comes when you get around pain or away from pain. But this old hymn says, joy that seekest me through pain. I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain. That morn shall tearless be. What's it saying? It's saying the rainbow. The reason that we can have hope is because the promise is not that God will just, you know, not bring any hard things into our life. It's that the battle bow is loosed upon Christ. One of the old Puritans said it this way, that if you don't understand justification by faith, by grace alone, and not because of what you did, then every trial will be a double trial. Because every trial will become an opportunity for you to wonder, does God really love me? If that question is settled because the battle bow was loosed upon Christ rather than you, it changes the way you deal with trials. And it's so important to understand that. Uh, William, or sorry, George Matheson who wrote this hymn, he actually originally wrote, not I traced the rainbow, but I climb the rainbow. The hymnal editor had him change it, but I wish they hadn't, because climb the rainbow is a lot better, richer, stronger image. It's the idea that in the midst of pain, I can grab hold of the covenant promise of God, appropriate it, climb it. Christians are not people who just kind of have this buoyant attitude and they see silver linings and clouds. They're people that see the covenant of God, the promise of God that changes the way they understand everything else. That's what the gospel does. That's what the gospel does. And it looks forward to a day when the new heavens and the new earth. You see, when Jesus comes, he brings yet another recreation, right? He said that to be part of me, you need to be born again. And to be recreated, he says, now the meek shall inherit the earth. And one day, the city of God will come down. There will be no more tears. God will wipe away every tear. And the new heavens and the new earth, the full beauty that God has always intended will be established. 
yet one more recreation, but it only comes through death, just like in the days of Noah. Death through the ark leading to new creation still wasn't enough, but the death that comes to Jesus brings a new creation that will finally make all things right. Let's pray together.